0: Well, we come to the end of our series in the Gospel of John, looking at conversations that Jesus had um, with various people uh, throughout uh, this Gospel, and uh, we save, uh, perhaps, um, I think one that I've been looking forward to, um, and particularly to the end, which happens to be the last chapter of the Gospel of John, John 21, as we just heard read, and Jesus's conversation of restoration with Peter uh, after his uh, spectacular failure um, during uh, the betrayal and arrest uh, of Christ. Really, the conversation that Jesus has with Peter is a conversation uh, that is fitting for describing the Christian life. Uh, and in fact, that's What I've entitled this sermon Jesus and the Christian we've we've looked at how Jesus interacts with the with the skeptic and with the searching and with the outcast and with the sick and with the hurting and and with the the doubting and now we come to Jesus and the Christian and no doubt all those other things have application in the Christian life but this one gets to the heart I think of what the Christian life is all about following Jesus and the grace of God found in Christ. Uh, but I was thinking, uh, as I thought about uh, what the Christian life is all about, I thought about the KISS principle. Uh, some of uh, those who have some military background or perhaps architectural background might be familiar with the KISS principle. Uh, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, or, if you don't mean to offend the person, keep it simple, Sam, or keep it simple, Sally, if those are your names. I guess you could do Susan or you know Saul or something like that. But the idea is not about the last part, the last S, it's about keeping it simple, whether it's designing a, a military maneuver or designing a house or it could be applied to a number of different uh, fields. The idea is to simplify, um, you know, simplification and minimalism didn't start with Marie Kondo, right? Like there the the idea of keeping something simple is so that those who receive it can remember it and thus can actually carry it out or can do it or. Uh, it would become um, intuitive perhaps for for you to use it. This is in some ways why I think products like Apple products have uh, such an intuitive nature to them that you get used to them. There's a simplicity to them. Uh, you know the PC is just kind of catching up on that, I suppose that you know you, you have this principle of simplicity uh, that, that is important that can can help boil down a lot of complex things to focus on what's mo- most important so that that project, that task, that building can be carried out and can be built and can be accomplished. And, and I think in the Christian life, sometimes we can overcomplicate it. Uh, we we get focused on all kinds of things. Uh, and when we look at the words of Jesus in the Gospels, we're continually brought back to what's most important. Uh, we're, we're reminded of what the simple and yet profound call of Jesus is for the Christian. And that... Simple and profound call is summed up in the two words, follow me. You know, we started the Gospel of John looking at Jesus' invitation to Nathaniel. The would be <clears throat> skeptic turned into a committed follower of Christ. And Jesus looked at Nathaniel and said, follow me. And here we are at the end of the Gospel of John, and we'll see as Jesus restores Peter. And restoring him he tells him of the kind of death he's going to die and his last words to peter are follow me even when peter is curious about what's going to happen to his fellow disciple the one jesus loved john jesus reminds him what is that to you you follow me that's the simple and yet profound call of the christian life in fact if you could sum it up the main idea, I think, of what we see in our passage, you could say it this way. The Christian life is following Jesus, fueled by grace. The Christian life is following Jesus, fueled by grace. To say it another way, it's grace-motivated discipleship. That's what the Christian life is all about, knowing and making Jesus known, motivated by grace. And sometimes we can get caught up in a lot of things. Some of them are very important to articulate and to, uh, to dive into and to pay attention to. But the simple call for every Christian is to follow Jesus. And the only way we can follow Jesus is through the grace that he provides. You see, I think we either fall into one of two errors when it comes to God's grace. We either abuse grace or we underestimate grace. You see, you abuse grace when you allow the idea of God's grace, of his forgiving uh, grace, To excuse your sin that's an abuse of grace that's the kind of person who says well God is loving and gracious I can go on sinning it doesn't matter we we've looked at Romans 6 before and Romans 6 unpacks how when you think about the amazing grace of God and if you ask so if God's gracious can I keep on sinning Paul says God forbid you're out of your mind so to abuse grace is to allow the idea of grace to excuse our sin but to underestimate grace is when we're aware of grace, but we, we doubt its ability to, God's ability to really forgive us as well as God's ability to progressively transform us. It's when we look at grace and we think, well, there's no way I can change. Grace doesn't have any application to this sin struggle. The grace of God doesn't have any uh, way to fix this conflict and this relationship or, or help me navigate this difficult trial in my life. So we either abuse grace or we underestimate grace. And if I were to poll you, I imagine that you probably have been guilty of doing both at some point uh, in your life. If you're a Christian, and perhaps if you're exploring Christianity, the idea of grace on one hand draws you to Christ, and yet on the other hand makes you question a little bit of do I really need grace? Don't I have something within me that I can offer, that I can do on my own and offer in my own strength? We, we all kind of buck up against grace because the idea of grace, while telling us of the good news of God's forgiveness, it also reminds us of the bad news that we are in need of his forgiveness. We are sinners in need of God's grace. And John 116, in the beginning of the gospel of John, as he unpacks um, in many ways the incarnation but in somewhat of a unique way he doesn't tell the incarnation story like Matthew and Luke he kind of goes even before the incarnation and tells us that Jesus the one born of a virgin born of the virgin Mary in the flesh was was no mere mortal man was fully god and fully man he existed before all things and all things came into existence by him and in John 1:16 John says in Jesus we've received grace upon grace grace and truth are found in jesus he goes on to say and that grace spoken of at the incarnation of the revealing of christ in his birth would be ultimately displayed through jesus's death and resurrection it's the grace of god displayed in the sacrifice of christ on the cross and in his resurrection and and before jesus ascends into heaven we're led into this conversation that he has with peter his perhaps one of his closest disciples. And in that conversation, what I, what I believe we're going to see as we look at this passage in verses 15-25 through 25, is we're going to see that grace is the banner that hangs over the Christian life. Grace is, is the banner that's over the whole of Christian life because following Jesus must be fueled by grace fueled by the grace that's revealed in Christ, fueled by the grace that's secured and given to us through his sacrificial death in our place and for our sins and and is enabled to be offered to us through his victorious resurrection from the dead. It's grace that fuels the Christian life. And we see that grace in John 21, 15 through 25. The first thing I want us to see as we look at verses 15 through 17 is that grace restores us when we fail. Grace restores us when we fail. We just heard this passage read. It's a, a famous passage as it talks us talks as we see Jesus and Peter talk uh, and and really the aftermath of Peter's denial of Jesus. So if you go back in the Gospels, you'll see that uh, Jesus was foretelling the disciples of his death. He would say that he's going to be um, he's going to be betrayed, then he's going to be mocked and beaten, and uh, and then ultimately killed. Um, on the cross and and all of the disciples are stunned by this and peter says jesus if, even if everyone else runs away from you i won't i don't know if you've, if you've ever done that if you've, you've ever been like so sure i'm 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 going through i'm i'm going to be bold i'm going to do this no matter what god i'm going to do this for you maybe outside the christian life you know uh we, we've seen this before um I don't think my daughter's in here, but, uh, you know, uh, we've gone to a few different amusement parks. And oh, there she is. Uh, We've gone to a few different amusement parks and um, just making sure she's listening Uh, and and getting up, working up the courage to go on a ride. Uh, And I love the process of seeing her become courageous. Uh, There's that moment where she's like, absolutely not 100 percent. No way. Never, ever will I ever get on any type of roller coaster ride, anything that goes uh, higher than me. I'm not getting on it. Uh, But then there's that moment uh, when she's determined, no matter what, I'm not going back. Um, And to her credit, most of the time, once she's got to that moment, she's actually gotten on the ride. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been there where you think to yourself, I'm 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 really going to go through with it. And then you get to the moment and you're like, "Nah, actually, I'm good. (laughs) Um, I worked myself up to it. But once I face it, I'm turning away. Well, that was Peter. He's like, no matter what, Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. Even if everybody else does, I'll be there standing. And then, of course, in the Gospels, we read and Jesus responds to him in that moment that before the rooster crows three times, that he he will deny Jesus three times. And of course, um, Jesus uh, denies or Peter denies Jesus three times, even to even to a little servant girl. Uh, He's ashamed uh, to to be identified with Jesus. And there in the Gospels, we see him weep uh, and depart as he's denied Jesus. And now we pick up after Jesus has been uh, resurrected. He's appeared to a few few times to his disciples. Now we see, uh, just like in John 20, as he came to Thomas, the doubting one, uh, in the second appearance to his disciples, as if only to come to Thomas to secure his belief, it's like in John 21, he's come to Peter particularly to restore him, to show him the grace of God that restores us when we fail. And we get to this point in John 21, 1 through 14, <clears throat> through perhaps what is known as the most criticized fishing t- story ever told. Um, Peter goes to Galilee, uh, and it says that Peter says to his disciples, or says to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And then the other disciples say, well, we're going with you. Um, And so I think that this is like 25% of country songs is about this. I'm going fishing, and my buddies say, I'm going with you. Um, And and the reason I say it's the most criticized fishing trip ever is because some uh, commentators wonder, uh, okay, so is Peter like going back on his commitment to follow Christ? Like, is he going back to his fishing trade here? Rather than following Jesus, has he abandoned the Great Commission to go fishing?
1: <clears throat>
0: and, and on one hand, I, uh, the first time I, I read that, I thought, well, maybe he is. Uh, I could see that, you know. Um, but I actually, th- I don't think that's fully what's happening, because Jesus told his disciples to go to Galilee, and there he would meet them. And that's exactly where Peter has gone with the disciples. They've gone to Galilee. What else are they supposed to do as they wait, but do what they know to do? Uh, and so they decide to go fishing. Jesus has already told them to wait until he returns, right? So here they are going fishing. I don't think they're uh, negating and running out and running away from Christ at this point. I think they're there waiting for Jesus to show up, and he does, and we see this fishing story that uh, it's in some ways parallels the beginning uh, of Jesus's ministry where he's, uh, they're out fishing and And Jesus tells them to cast the net on one side and they catch a big haul of fish. And and in that moment, at the beginning of the gospel, Peter sees who it is and it's Christ and he runs to them. Similar things happening here. It's just once more, I think, affirming uh, the the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Here, Jesus eats breakfast with the disciples, cooks breakfast with them. He's not a, a ghost or an illusion. This is really Jesus risen from the dead eating breakfast who eats fish for breakfast i'm not sure but jesus did with the disciples and and now he has this conversation with peter and the question begins with this simon son of john do you love me more than these he's going to ask this question do you love me three times but this first part uh, in some ways i think expresses our need for humility There's some question as to whether Jesus pulls Peter to the side and has this conversation individually with him or if he has it in the presence of the other disciples. I I think he has it in the presence of the other disciples so as to affirm the role that Peter has in the establishing of the church uh, to uh, affirm that before the other disciples, just as Peter uh, publicly denies Christ, here he is publicly reaffirming and restoring uh, Peter uh, but he asked this question, do you love me more than these? And it reminds us of what Peter said, even though all they fall away, I will not fall away, he says in Mark 14, 29. And so now Jesus restores Peter in the presence of his fellow disciples so that he can be useful in the mission of God. And he asks him this question, do you love me more than these? As this reminder uh, of the need for humility. As Peter once pridefully said, "Oh, I'm better than everyone else. Even if they all fall away, I won't. Now he's confronted yet yeah, while firmly, but graciously by Jesus to remind him of his need for humility. And as he goes on and he asks these questions, this question three different times, it's not like, you know, an MC at a at an event where he's like, Good afternoon, you know, and and you guys don't say anything. He's like, I said, good afternoon, you know, and and then the third day, good afternoon, you know, and he waits for everybody to get pumped up, right? Like that's the, the goal of the MC to get everybody pumped up. Jesus isn't the hype man, all right? Like that's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't trying to hype it up. He's not, I also don't think, and I think this is important, Jesus isn't also trying to pour salt in the wound of shame. Obviously, as Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus asked him this question three times. He doesn't do it to provoke shame for Peter failing. I think he does it asking a searching question to remind Peter that he only can love Jesus. He only can be useful to Jesus because of the grace that God provides. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. It's this reminder, Lord, You, you know that, that I, I can't offer anything of, of great substance. You know my backstory. You know I've failed. All I can do is say yes. And in fact, as he goes on, he says, do you love me? And then a the third time, Simon said to John, do you love me? Notice not only humility, but dependence upon the grace of God because what happens is he says, Lord, You know Everything. You've asked this three times now. And as it gets to the end, you see in verse 17, Lord, You know everything. You know that I love You. Four times we see this word. No. Yes, Lord, You know that I love You. Yes, Lord, You know that I love You. You not only know that I love You, You know everything, Peter says. It's this expression of dependence. As Peter gets asked this question a third time, he doesn't defend his love for the Lord. He doesn't say, Well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but those three times that I denied you, that was an exception to the rule. The other times in my life, I've loved you for the most part. Right? It's it's not a it's not a defense of his love for Jesus. He doesn't dismiss or justify his denial of Jesus. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't dismiss it. All he can do is appeal to the Lord's knowledge and say, Lord, You know everything. I can't say anything that would offer a defense for my failure. All I can do is throw myself before You and say, Lord, You know that I love You. That's the the expression of dependence and humility upon the grace of God. All I can do, God, is depend on, on You who knows all things, who's now, as I know, risen from the dead. You know my failure, Lord. I love you, even though I failed you. Only for your grace can I offer you any love. We see this restoration when we fail. And Peter's dependence on Christ I think is a good reminder for us of what it means to love God. Because in light of the grace of God, our response to the grace of God fundamentally is a a love for God in return. We love God because he first loved us. Our love for God is a response to his grace, not an effort to earn his grace. It's grace first, then our love for God, not our love for God in hopes that he would be gracious to us. And that, my friends, is the profound message of Christianity. Not perform so God will be gracious, but when you were a sinner, God was gracious to you and me. And that changes everything. Following Jesus fueled by grace, and our response is love for God. And it raises the question as we see Jesus probe with this question Do you love me? Three times. It brings up the question Was Peter's love not genuine? before when he said, even if everyone else falls away, I won't fall away? Was it a, a fake love? Was he just pretending?
1: <clears throat>
0: I think as I've thought about that, I don't, I don't think his love was fake. But I believe it reveals to, to us, it shows us in a way, a mirror to us of our own love for God. All of us uh, who have professed faith in Christ love God and yet fall short. This is the truth of indwelling sin that remains in us that when we want to love God and do right, the desire to, uh, to go our own way and to do wrong lies close at hand, Paul would say in Romans 7. And so it's not that his love is fake, but I think it's uh, this, this uh, picture of love that falls short and, and it, it, it speaks of the grace of God that is underneath our love for God because when we fail, we come back in repentance to God, needing His grace. We begin the Christian life in response to God's grace, which leads us to repentance. And the ongoing reality of the Christian life as God exposes sin and reveals sin and shows us areas of selfishness and pride, as we see our sin, we continually are responding to the grace of God, repenting and turning away from sin. And we grow in the Christian life not in a, uh, just an upper right uh, straight line shot to holiness. We grow in the Christian life as we continually respond in repentance to the grace of God in pursuit of becoming more and more like Christ. That's what following Jesus is all about. And we see that our love for God, though weak and faint, is held up by, is spurred on by, the grace of God. Our love for God isn't a showcase of our performance. But instead, our love for God is a display of God's lavish grace that restores failures, that strengthens us in our weakness, it emboldens us when we're fearful. See, any expression of our love for God follows from and flows out of God's grace for us. That's how we respond to his grace that restores us when we fail. Our love is weak and frail, and God knows that. And by his grace, he enables us to walk in his commands, to obey him, to love him. A while back, as I was studying this passage, I came across an old hymn from a man named William Cooper called Hark, My Soul, It Is the Lord. um, Stirring long title, um, as most songs uh, were back then. But the last verse, still to this day, uh, and even as I was reflecting on it this week, I think just captures so much of the sentiment uh, for the daily experience of the Christian, the ongoing experience of the Christian. When we hear about the grace of God and we think about, our call to love him in return, and and sometimes our inability to love him, our failure in loving him, uh, getting stumbled up and tripped up in our pursuit of loving him. Cooper writes these words. He says, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. And then I I think this is the the cry and the expression of faith of of every Christian when he says, yet I love thee and adore thee. And here's the cry. Oh, for grace to love thee more. It is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet, God, I love you. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I adore you. And yet I fail. Oh, for grace to love you more. It's grace that spurs on greater love for God. If you want to love God more, Dwell on His grace for you and I. That grace was displayed in Jesus' death on the cross, in our place for our sin. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. The judgment of God against our sin that we deserve because we go our own way, we disobey His commands and we elevate other things above Him. Christ took the judgment of God in our place and He rose from the dead He has the power to forgive and the power to give new life now and eternal life forever. And in that same hymn, Cooper writes and reflecting on God's love and His grace towards us and speaking uh, almost as if God is speaking to us. God says, Mine is an unchanging love. Though our love is weak and faint, God's love is unchanging. Higher than the heights above, deeper than the depths beneath, free and faithful and strong as death. I love that picture. And, and if, I were, if I were there back when Cooper was writing these words back in the uh, late 1800s, I would have said, I hope to Mr. Cooper, it's not just strong as death. It's stronger than death. Because in Christ's death and His resurrection, we're called to love God wholeheartedly But that love that God calls forth from us can only take place because of His grace showed for us that wasn't just strong as death, but was stronger than death when He rose out of the grave. Grace restores us from our failure. But in this same interaction as Jesus questions Peter three times, we also see that grace empowers us to carry out God's mission. So just as Peter responds to Jesus three times, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus responds to that response from Peter by three times saying, feed my lambs or tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three different occasions. Some people will point out Jesus uses two different words for love in the Greek, and here he also uses kind of two different words for feed and tend. I think that... uh, The words are different, and yet at the same time, I think they're taken together here uh, collectively, not to make uh, a nuanced point, but a collective point uh, of, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, and and there's this call to care for God's sheep. What Peter is called to do is a reflection of the commission that Jesus gives all of his disciples. It, It harks back to Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says of Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not gates of hell will not prevail against it. You can take the boy out of Arkansas, but not Arkansas out of the boy. If you caught that, um, <clears throat> the the picture uh, and the role of Peter uh, is that Peter, and particularly, I believe, upon his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that the church is built upon that confession and the unique role that Peter, along with the other disciples, have. Uh, is in giving witness and proclaiming that message of Jesus as the Messiah. And what that tells us is that the gospel, follow me here, as Peter is given this assignment of, uh, of building the church, the gospel is advanced as the church is built up. And, and we know that Peter, in his foundational role in establishing the church, Peter didn't see that his role was something that was passed down as a succession. Um, Peter didn't see that, that he was a pope-like figure that would be passed down in succession. And we know that's the case because one of the letters that Peter wrote, 1 Peter 5, Peter writes to the fellow pastors, fellow elders, of the church that's scattered because of persecution. And he says to them, as fellow elders and witnesses of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, he says to these fellow pastors, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The same thing that Jesus told Peter to shepherd my sheep, to feed my sheep, to tend my sheep. Peter tells the pastors of these churches that he's writing to in 1 Peter to shepherd the flock of God, to tend the sheep. The church, as the the gospel is advanced, as the church is built up. God used Peter to make Christ known and establish the church. It was Peter who stood up at Pentecost and proclaimed Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And on that day, 3,000 people were added to the church. It was Peter who would lead the church at Jerusalem and then uh, eventually uh, the brother of Jesus, James, who would lead the church. It was Peter who would go, to, um, <clears throat> who would go when the Gospel goes to the, uh, <clears throat> to the Gentiles for the first time and uh, it's taken to Cornelius. It would be Peter who would go and proclaim the message and affirm the work of the Gospel going from the Jew to the Gentile. God used Peter in advancing the Gospel through establishing the church, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for all people, just as Jesus intended. And today, Christ's mission advances the same way as we, as God's people, bear witness to Christ near and far and establish His church. And being a part of treasuring Christ's church, you're a part of advancing the gospel through establishing the church. The day will come for some of you when you move to a new location And perhaps you join either another church plan or an established church or perhaps God takes you through your work to go to the nations and work among the nations and while working, be a part of advancing the gospel. And while you're there and while we're wherever God has placed us, we have a role in advancing the gospel through establishing the church. It's through the church and by the church that the mission of Christ marches on today. And that's what Jesus is affirming through Peter and his unique role in the establishing of the church. And, and by extension, though we don't have the unique role as a founding apostle like the apostle Peter does, we share in the commission that Christ gave to all disciples to advance the gospel through establishing his church. But this week, I was I was listening uh, to an old sermon before I was born from J.I. Packer, a theologian um, uh, who... Uh, served at a seminary in Canada, a British theologian. Um, sometimes I just listen, like to listen to British uh, speakers just because I sound more, uh, I feel more intelligent when I listen to them. But um, as he was reflecting on how the church is built up, he, he pressed home the and reminding that the church is full of sheep.
1: <clears throat>
0: and I'm not a shepherd or the son of a shepherd, um, but I believe, uh, as I understand uh, sheep, sheep tend to be somewhat obstinate and don't do things that make sense. Um, they sometimes are guilty of being identified by the last S and the KISS principle um, and, and, and kind of going their own way and needing protection, needing care. Otherwise, they would die without the care of a shepherd. And... Uh, and, and sheep can be knocked for all those things. But as Jesus tells Peter here, if you look at the, each time he tells Peter his task, it's not just feed the sheep or feed the lambs. It's feed my sheep, feed my lambs. We're reminded the people of God, the church, we're, we're not just stupid sheep, though we can be that. We're God's sheep. Purchased by Him. He knows our name. We know His voice. We respond to Him. There are sheep that aren't of this fold that He has work for us to do to bring them into this fold. We're loved greatly, bought at a great price through the cross. Jesus, in our place for our sins, we're we're His sheep. And Jesus is saying to Peter that the church is built up when you take care of the sheep. So in essence, he says to Peter, if you love me, then demonstrate your love by loving others for my sake. Peter is to do that to the people of God. To love others for His sake. And due to the sheep analogy, that means even the difficult ones are to be loved for Christ's sake. As I heard that and I reflected on that and just went back and was reading the passage, I see our role in advancing the gospel through building up the church. We also can see that we have this calling. The church is built up as God's people love each other, even the difficult ones, as well as love beyond our walls, even the difficult ones for Christ's sake and in the manner that Christ loved us care for my sheep, love others sacrificially for my sake. We show our love for God not just by singing songs to God. We show our love for God by actually, tangibly, really loving other people. This is why we say at TCC that community isn't found. Community is cultivated. Community is cultivated when we love one another intentionally, through the difficulty, through the awkwardness. the sacrifice we show our love for God by loving others for Jesus sake we show our love by patiently and faithfully caring for and serving others not to get something from God not to prove something to other people but simply in response to the grace that God has given us in Christ grace empowers us to carry out God's mission And it's really only grace that I think that can empower that kind of love. Otherwise, we love to get or we love out of convenience. It's grace that empowers us and frees us to love sacrificially. It's grace that frees us and empowers us to to love without strings attached, not because we get something, but because we genuinely desire to offer something. I was reminded yesterday, I got my hair cut. Um, at Great Clips on Carpenter Road. And during Survey and Arbor Week, uh, we took some blessing baskets to a number uh, of different businesses in the shopping area, Great Clips being one of them. And one of the reasons that we wanted to do that is a previous conversation I had with one of the workers there reminded me, uh, as she said, I don't know that I'll ever be able to go to church because I work every Sunday. I'm reminded as the church, I don't want to just be a place where I invite others to join us, though I want to do that. I want us to be a church that goes to where other people are and meets them there. Oh, I can't take the church service there. If I could find a way to do it at Great Clips one day, I'd love to do it. But I wanted to find some way to say to the lady at Great Clips, we see you, we love you, we care for you. And... I just mentioned that I'm from a church and that we were about to begin meeting at the Cinemark down the road and uh, unprovoked from any of that. She said, you know, there was a church that came in a few weeks ago and it was the sweetest thing. They just brought a really good snacks, actually, uh, and just dropped them off. We saw them out in the parking lot and we thought to ourselves, they're surely about to come in here and sell us something. I said, I'm glad that you enjoyed the snacks. We just wanted to say we love you and we're grateful for you. And Jesus does, too. Our response to the grace of God is loving others for the sake of Christ. Who are you loving for the sake of Christ? Who are you loving in the body of Christ that requires time and energy, patience and sacrifice for the sake of Christ, for the sake of building up the church? Who are you loving outside the body of Christ tangibly, with no strings attached, not loving to get, not loving out of convenience? The loving in response to the grace of God. Grace empowers us to carry out God's mission. And then finally, grace sustains us as we follow Christ. Grace sustains us as we follow Christ. It sustains us as we count the cost. Once Peter affirms three times that he loves Jesus, he's dependent on Him and His grace, and Jesus commissions him to feed His sheep. In verse 18, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress and carry you where you do not want to go. And John, as an aside, says, This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And history and tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, like Christ, but not wanting to die in the same manner as a Savior. He was crucified upside down.
1: <clears throat>
0: Peter would give his life for identifying with Christ. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. It's grace that sustains us to follow Jesus. He tells them the way in which he's going to die. And Peter, Peter got this. If you read 1 Peter 4, it's amazing to think about Peter before Jesus' death and resurrection, how he often was putting his foot in his mouth, and then you read First Peter and you realize he got it. He got the grace of God. He, he said, "If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name." And First Peter 5:12, he says, "I've written to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Here it is, stand firm in it. Here's grace, stand firm in God's grace." And in response to that grace, and even in light of the sacrificial death, uh, the, the martyrdom, the, the, the type of death that Peter would die, Jesus looks at him and he says, follow me. Follow me.
1: <clears throat>
0: As I pointed out before, in the beginning of the gospel, the end of the gospel, everywhere in between, this is the call of Jesus. This is the simple and profound call of Jesus. Follow me. And the truth is, We all follow someone or something, even if it's ourselves. And Jesus said, The mark of a Christian is that you follow me and you follow me on my terms. Mark 8 34, Jesus would say, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says, You don't determine, you don't follow me on your terms, you follow me on my terms. And that invitation, that costly invitation, comes with the greatest joy and purpose because it's on the path of following Christ that we find joy in joining him in the mission, even when it's costly. It's because grace sustains us as we follow him. And it's grace that sustains us as we count the cost. But it's also grace that sustains us as we keep focused on Jesus. You see, uh, in response, in verse 20, Peter turns and he sees the disciple, John, whom Jesus loved the one who had been reclining at the table uh, when Jesus spoke of being denied. And when Peter saw him, verse 21, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about what about him? And Jesus says to him, I love how straightforward it is. If it's my will for him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. And it says that people thought that this meant that that John was never going to die Um, but he was writing this letter in verse 24, and he says, well, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, Uh, and we know that his testimony is true, as if to say, I probably will die one day, in fact, (laughs) but I'm telling you, this really happened. Um, And and he concludes by saying that there were many other things that Jesus did, and if every one of them were to be written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. As Peter hears this costly call to follow him, he starts to wonder, what about what about my friend? What about John? <clears throat> we, we kind of poked fun a little bit uh, at this last week as it, it tells us that um, John and Peter were running to the tomb and John outran Peter to the tomb. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you've had a friend like John uh, who was better at everything than you were. Um, <clears throat> that's uh, that's Peter here. He's like, here's my buddy John. He's better at everything than me. What about him? You know, if this is what I've got, what about John? Um, and and Jesus, Jesus says that's not that's not what it's about. It's not about their story. It's not about my call in their life. It's about my call in your life. You follow me. The emphasis is put on you, but you, Peter. You follow me. And when we hear this, we, we see this kind of pride that's expressed in comparison. It's in all of our hearts. I don't know if you've felt it before. You've ever been like Peter, comparing yourself to others, comparing your lot to the lot that others have, comparing the circumstances and the situations of your life, to the circumstances and situations of somebody else's life. I think that underneath comparison is pride. We either think we're better or have more than someone else or we wish we were better or had more than somewhere else. And the outcome of comparison is always self-justification or self-loathing. You either come out feeling great about yourself when you're better, when you stack up against someone else because it takes your eyes Uh, it turns your eyes to yourself and thinking about how you're better or you walk away self with self-loathing and resentment because you come out lacking. And you're reminded that they have it better than you or they're better at that than you or they have more than this than you do. It can happen in singleness and in marriage. It can happen in academics and career. It can happen with possessions. It can happen with talents. We can we can get. And here's here's the, the, the I think the outcome of of all of this comparison as it relates to our call to follow Christ. At the end of the day, it distracts us. It distracts us and keeps us from from joy because we take our eyes off Christ. It distracts us and keeps us from God's purpose for us because it takes our eyes off the mission that God has given us and it actually keeps us from community because it takes our eyes off loving and serving others as we should. And instead we're comparing ourselves, measuring up or not measuring up to others. And when you measure when you don't measure up to others and you see someone as below you, You don't want to spend time with them. You don't want to give yourself for them. And when you feel that somebody's better than you and you don't have any way to approach them, you're not going to give yourself in community. And so at the end of the day, we rob ourselves of the very community that God is calling us to enjoy. Christ calls us to follow him. And when he calls us to follow him, he doesn't always give us all the details like he does Peter. He tells Peter, this is how your life is going to end. Sometimes I wish I had that knowledge. I wish I knew when and I didn't he didn't tell him when I wish I knew how my life was going to end. I could avoid that, you know, and keep on living. Right. (laughs) No. You sometimes wish you had the knowledge. Right. So that you could plan everything accordingly. I like the call on the insurance. I can't remember which insurance it is like, hey, just telling you uh, we're scheduled for a blowout tire during rush hour. You know, like, uh, can I reschedule that blowout tire during rush hour? No, once it's scheduled, you know, that's it. Um, We like to know what's coming in advance. Well, God doesn't always tell us all the details of our story, but he tells us our story. You might be familiar with the quote from C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy when um, Aslan is talking to a child, Shasta, and, and there's this kind of comparison that's going on and he says to the child, Child, I'm telling you your own story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. He's calling us to follow him. So, for a minute, just don't think about everyone else. Think about you. Are you following him? Are you busy, distracted, comparing yourself and your situation to others, wishing something were different? Rather than comparing yourself, perhaps you need to bring that to him, confess that to him, share that burden with him because he cares. The simple call to follow Christ. Follow me is what we're going to conclude with today. Here in just a minute, we're going to have Amber and Natalie come back up and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I was reflecting this week. And over the past few weeks, I've heard a number of different stories about Christians around the world being persecuted. I was reading a story about Christians in Nigeria. Some 3,500 Christians have been killed just in six months this year, um, tracked down by Boko Haram and and other uh, militant groups in the area that are persecuting Christians, and hearing stories about Christians and pastors in the Middle East that are being contacted by the Taliban, being said, we know where you're at, and we know what you're doing, as if to provoke and instill fear within them, and just thinking about how we get distracted by so much stuff that's right in front of us here in the American church, and sometimes we forget about what's happening around the world as followers of Christ, face persecution and suffering. And I was taken back to a summer I spent in Jordan, uh, seeking, I was living there, and for a two-month kind of mission project working uh, on learning a language, learning Arabic, and uh, working with university students. And as we took language classes, one of the things we did was we learned the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And uh, we learned it in Arabic to kind of help us with our uh, our Arabic.
1: <clears throat>
0: and and I, I just kept coming back this week as I was thinking about this call to follow Jesus. And it's the same call that Jesus gave Uh, Nathaniel and Peter in the Gospels. It's the same call that he gave believers in the first few centuries of the church as it was established and through the Middle Ages and the Reformation and uh, and throughout throughout the history of our country and other nations. It's the same call that uh, brothers and sisters in Nigeria received. It's the same call that many brothers and sisters in Afghanistan received. And all around the world in different languages, the call to follow Jesus and I was just taken back to listen to that song. to at Bayasui to at Bayasui I have decided to follow Jesus No turning back, no turning back The story of that song goes back to India when a believer comes to faith in Christ and the chief of a tribe so incensed by his profession of Christ gathers this man's family and calls upon him to recant his faith. And if he doesn't, he'll shoot his two sons who are there with bow and arrow. And he says, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And he shoots the arrows, kills his two children, one biographer tells us.
1: <clears throat>
0: and then the chief says, having lost your children, will you also lose your wife for your, for your Jesus? And the story is told that, <clears throat> in essence, he says, the world before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, and his wife is shot. <clears throat> And once more, given an opportunity to deny him, he won't deny him. As he says, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And then he dies for professing faith in Christ. When I think about how simple and profound the call is to follow Jesus and how much we get caught up in so many other things, think about believers who have given their life for the sake of Christ. As we think about the call to follow Christ, it might mean some inconveniences and and some sacrifices that we make along the way. Our stories may be different, but we follow the same Savior with the same mission. And he's telling us our story, and he's calling us not to compare ourselves to one another so that we'll end up being distracted from what he calls us to and off track from what we're supposed to be doing, busying ourselves with all kinds of things rather than being about the simple, profound call to follow Jesus and invite others to do that as well. He tells us to look to him. God has given us whatever lot we have, and whatever lot he's given us, it's good. It's for His purpose. It's for our good. For His glory. So we can follow Him in the midst of our lacking. Just as brothers and sisters follow Him in the face of death and persecution every day. We can follow Him in the midst of our disappointment. In the midst of our sickness. In the midst of our, our struggles. In the midst of our waiting. In the midst of our struggles to understand what God's doing. He calls us to follow Him and keep following Him. It's grace that sustains us as we follow Him. And as we think about the life of Peter, we begin to understand that our failure, our sin, is not an obstacle to the mission of Christ when we in repentance respond to the restoring grace of God that's given to us in Christ. And like Peter, we count the cost and we follow Him. So as a church, we can bring our failures to Him, And be restored and we can set our eyes on the one who calls us to join him in his mission. And join in the chorus with believers from all over the nations. Saying I've decided to follow Jesus. And there's no turning back. It's grace that sustains us. It's grace that empowers us. It's grace that restores us.